Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. The theme for Season 3 is better. Better everything, from AI to being fairer, big ideas to body language, if it's important to being a fairer person, business or planet, an expert and I talked about it. What follows is an edited recording, as Mouthwash is a live show created just for Twitter spaces, so the quality is more conference call than podcast sound booths. Sponsors are really important to me, so please take a moment to visit Ecology. They planted a tree in the TBD forest for every live listener we had. And if you want to offset your carbon footprint, you can do that easily. Just nip to ecology.com forward slash TBD conference and sign up. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com forward slash TBD conference. Also, I was honoured to partner with and test out Spaces Dashboard, the helpful tool that's making it super easy to find great audio on Twitter. Check them out on Twitter, at Spaces Dashboard, or one word, a mount from Mouthwash for a surprise. Mouthwash is the audio show of TBD, the conference that people call TED without the bullshit. It's going hybrid March 31st, 2022. So get your tickets for the in-person event or the global live stream at universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Use the code Mouthwash, you'll even get 25% off every ticket you buy. Thanks for listening, enjoy the show. Sign up to the newsletter on my Twitter profile, that's Paul underscore underscore Armstrong, and you'll get informed about all future seasons of Mouthwash. Trust me, you'll want to hear what we have coming up. Finally, as with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season three of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. As the conference attendees say, is like Ted without the BS. So you know we wouldn't make you a rubbish project. Uh, we're doing an audio show with a bit of a difference. But yeah, it's a strange time around the world. Uh, Zoom fatigue, climate change, the great resignation to the metaverse. Um, a lot seems scary, unfamiliar. People are rethinking everything from core beliefs to the way they work. Uh, a big theme that seems to be an emerging desire to improve and make things, including themselves, better. So that's what we decided for season three, better. Better everything from AI to PR, body language to open innovation. I'm speaking with massive brains across the world, uh, from execs from Twitter to Walmart to Babylon, about making you and the world we live in a better place. Season three includes best-selling authors like tonight's Maskai of Kobasco. We also have security experts, speech coaches, and Silicon Valley startups who want to reverse the aging process. It's going to be a great season. Make sure you get all the SMS reminders so you don't miss a minute of it. Okay, on with tonight's show. Uh, today's smart cookie is one of the world's most prolific writers, I think, at the moment, Michael Baskar. People say if you loved uh, Humankind and Sapiens, you'll love his next book, Human Frontiers. Welcome to the show, Michael. How are you doing? Uh, I'm very good. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me here. Very good. Sorry for that slight technical snafu. Just remember, Twitter spaces, guys, you can only listen on desktop. You can't speak. So that's good. Um, right. Before I chat more with Michael, uh, let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved. Um, Twitter spaces is still new to a lot of people. So we, we usually just take a bit to just explore it at the front. Um, on the mobile app, the top, that's where I or any speaker can post tweets like the ones you see up there at the moment. It's a very cool little feature. Lots of people are trying to uh, copy it ruthlessly. Um, but yeah, you can follow links, uh, chat about a photo you're seeing up there and that sort of thing. Uh, take one moment, just at the moment, just to see the last tweet that I put up there. It's about the show being live at the moment. Um, it's very helpful, apart from, uh, you know, mine and Michael's uh, egos. If you just click and retweet the tweet in the nest, it'll retweet it to your people and it'll let the world know that there's something good happening. But beyond that, it also puts a tree in the TBD forest for every live speech uh, 
audience member that we get. So very good thing. So fill the room, tweet it multiple times, do what you can, help the world and that sort of stuff. Um, ecology are the people that power that forest, by the way. And we've planted over 10,000 trees with them through the TBD conference in like a subscription for the planet, if you think about it. Um, if you want to find out more, um, you can go to ecology.com. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. And you can start offsetting your own carbon footprint. You get your own profile, check out ours. But basically, they're all about setting low carbon goals, watching your forest grow and that sort of thing. Their whole thing is reducing the world's um, emissions by 2040 through collective action. So let's all do it together. So if you head over to ecology.com forward slash TBD conference, you'll see our forest, get your own, whatever you want to do. But let's help the planet. Um, we're also really proud to be sponsored by Spaces Dashboard. That's the company that's helping good audio be found here on Twitter. They provide new, fast, easy ways to find all the latest live and also once in the past. That's super handy as well. Uh, Twitter Spaces. So you can get your hands on that earlier than anyone else. Just simply follow them on Twitter, mention Mouthwash, and you'll get yourself in. Just go to Spaces Dashboard and you're laughing. Okay. On with the show. Time to shout Michael in a stunning amount of emojis. Um, if you click the heart with a plus and begin furiously, I can't speak today, tapping furiously while I tell you more about him, don't stop until the end. So look for the heart down the bottom with a plus, start tapping it, ready, steady, go. Michael Bascar is a triple threat writer, researcher, and digital publisher. He co-founded Canelo, a new type of publishing company, after being consultant and writer in residence at DeepMind, an alphabet company, the world's leading AI research lab. A regular in the media, talking about the future of media, creative industries, and the economics of technology, Michael is a regular writing for, or being featured on, pages like Bloomberg TV, FT, The Guardian, and many, many more. Co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Publishing, a British Council Young Creative Entrepreneur and a Frankfurt Book Fair Fellow, Michael's previous work, Curation, The Power of Selection in a World of Excess and The Content Machine, have been critically acclaimed and his work is likened to Sapiens and Humankind. High accolade indeed. Uh, what did I miss out about you that people should know, Michael? Um, I guess uh, that I really struggle to find the time to do it all. Um, and yeah, <laughs> You know, it, it sounds um, it, it sounds like a lot. So yeah, that's that's probably the main thing you've missed, Paul. <laughs> you you do do an awful lot, I will say. Um, but let's start with an easy question. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Um, I probably like most people. Um, just thought, crikey, it's early. What am I doing awake right now? I then would have checked my phone, no doubt checked Twitter, um, and essentially just looked for well what's going on anything interesting come in anything that is is worrying um it was probably something like that a long time ago now so i i struggle to re recreate what happened it's it's funny isn't it I, i'm hearing this a lot from people at the moment maybe it's just the time of year but um, they say the days feel longer you know, just everything's piling on and that sort of stuff, whether it's they've got to get stuff done or not. So uh, I was chatting to a few people about what, how they come up with their big ideas, uh, researching for the show and that sort of stuff. And people were just like saying, God, Paul, I haven't got time to think big at the moment. <laughs> Which I was like, oh, great. Well, you should definitely listen in. So, yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's something that I'm, I am quite interested in. Didn't really um, go into too much in, in the book. Um, but I, I do just have this theory that um, everyone is so busy. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm getting quite a bit of feedback. Where's that coming from? Oh, I don't know. I, can you can you hear it or not? No, it's fine uh, for me. 
Give us, uh, use the emoji people. Can everyone hear all right? Give me 100% if you can hear all right. Use the emoji button. Is everyone still alive? Give me the emojis if you can hear us all right. Maybe they're getting the feedback. Ooh, no, there's no other speakers. Oh, we've got one emoji. Ian's laughing, so. Yeah, I know it. Use the 100% if you are uh, getting feedback. No. no, it's all right. Or they're dead. They're dead or we're getting no feedback. One of the two. All right, no, we're good. We've got people with no with hundreds, so we're good. We're good. Okay, so it's just at this end. No, I just have this theory that everyone is so busy that it, it's disrupting people's ability to actually think very deeply. Um, people can only sort of shallow, fast-moving currents, and, and it's a problem. Why people don't have these grand ideas anymore, they just don't have the opportunity. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the last 24 months have been rough for a lot of people and there's now starting to get sort of like the long, long term effects of it, if that makes sense. How have the last 24 months been for you? Obviously, you've been pushing out both. Um, surprisingly fine. Um, you know, so I, I guess there are a few few things that have been going on. Um, one, you know, as you mentioned, um, I, I work for and, and help run a publishing company. And it's been great for publishers. You know, it's really sparked a renaissance in reading. Um, it's been good for doing my writing as well. It's just fewer distractions all around. Um, I think it's been interesting as well. I used to spend a lot of time getting the train from Oxford to London. I now spend a lot more time at home, had a second child. So it's been good from all of that. I, I have to say, I think like everyone, I, I did eventually find that it was beginning to kind of shut things down for me. And it was starting to get a grind that the horizons of life had shrunk a bit. Um, so, you know, it's it's mixed. I think just like everyone, it's been a strange experience, but I don't think I've had it too bad at all. And, and, and in most ways feel really lucky, to be honest. Oh, that's good. We've had a mixed bag of people um, on the on the show and they've been giving answers to that one. So I'm always like, is it going to be all right? Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's definitely been all right and more positive than not. Good, good. I'm glad that we've had some very honest answers as well, which have been mind blowing, um, but very, very good as well. But um, let's talk about the book. Um, congrats on the new book, Always Hard. When I got a copy of it, I was like, Christ, that's big. Uh, <laughs> when do I have time to read that? Um, but I, I plugged my way through it. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, its focus is around big ideas and where humanity is going next. Um, what made you want to or choose to write about big ideas? Um, it was uh, quite a long journey to get to a point where, where this book came into view. At first, I was just interested in where new ideas come from. Um, and I, I just really wanted to know how people came up with ideas that revolutionised everything. Um, it just didn't seem like we had a really good explanation for how almost out of nowhere, you can just have a huge new idea. Um, so I was just interested in that at first. Um, then I did uh, this consultancy work at DeepMind, and they're an incredible organization, and they're doing stuff right at the frontiers of what's possible in AI. And that made me interested in how organizations might be the ones to come up with big new ideas. And so it was while I was there and while I was researching that that I started to come across this whole body of research that basically said – Forget what you think about everything accelerating. Actually, there's an awful lot of stagnation out there. Actually, um, things might not just be speeding up. Things might be 
getting stuck. It might be getting slowed down, that technology isn't charging into the future, that our politics is stuck, our culture is just repeating itself, our science isn't capable of revolutionizing itself. So I came across all of these separate discussions and I just thought is a really, really interesting point. As a whole, as a society, as a civilization, are we speeding up or slowing down? And and the way, what are the root causes of that? So so that just took me off on on a little journey of research and I tracks. And in the end, I just thought, well, this is one of the biggest questions that are around. I mean, it's almost the most important question there is. Um, you know, if if we're coming up with lots of new ideas uh, and really big ideas, you know, probably humanity's on the right track. If we're not. And if we're not at a time when, you know, we've never had more knowledge, we've never had more wealth and opportunity, then that says something quite worrying. So it just it just became this really big question that I just became fascinated by. Um, and it wasn't what I started out as. And, and it seemed like people weren't talking about it enough. It definitely feels like a bit of a contrarian sort of view when I threw it. Let's go. Let's keep stay top for a bit. Where are we today with big ideas? How do they tend to happen? Well, I think all ideas are basically mixtures of other ideas. So, you know, every idea is just a recombination of things that already exist and um, ideas that are there and you put them together in really interesting new ways. Um, and, you know, often it takes a lot of time to work out how to do that or what are the meaningful combinations or how it's all going to work. Um, but that's at the core of ideas. Um but that doesn't mean it's easy just because you're combining things. It's actually really, really hard. Um, you know, so that, that's where ideas are today and where they've always been. I guess the question is, well, are we doing that really well? Um, I think we do it well on one level, on a sort of incremental level. We're quite good at just nudging things forward. We're quite good at creating, um, you know, the next smartphone that's a little bit better. Um but, you know, there was really only one iPhone launch and that was a paradigm shift. And then ever since, you're just kind of nudging at the edges, little incremental steps. Um, broadly speaking, we're much better at those little incremental steps than, than big giant leaps. Um, and, and that's strange. You wouldn't have expected that. Um, I mean, I can just give you some examples if, if you want. Um, you know, if you think about transport, um, somebody born in, say, uh, the mid-19th century, um, you know, they, they maybe had trained, but um, that that was the only really radically new transport that they'd ever been on. And that was basically the first radically new um, mode of transportation in thousands of years. Um, but by the time they died, they would have been flying on planes, going on buses, driving a car. Um, you know, effectively, they would have been using all the modes of transport that we use today. Um you know, we have much safer planes, um, better cars. We have sat-nav. We have nice little gadgets and gizmos. It's all cleaner, safer, sleeker. But what we haven't done is we haven't had any new inventions in transport that realistically are rolled out enough or exist enough to say that they rival the airplane or the motor car. So, you know, arguably, the person who was born in the mid-19th century saw new ideas in transportation come through in their life a lot more than somebody born in, say, 1970. So it's that kind of thing is where I think we're falling down on. We're, we're good at making stuff better, 
we're bad at creating massive new revolutions. You mention in the book um, that you, well, you you ponder, you propose the question, do you really think our best years are behind us? Um, and well, that's kind of, yeah, it goes to the heart of it. Um, I, I've ummed and ahed about this so much. Um, ultimately, in the book, I go down on, on the side that, no, the best days aren't behind us. Um, but I actually think it's so close run on so many levels that anyone who just sort of assumes that um, we're on like this automatic expressway to a really bright, amazing future is is almost certainly wrong. Um, there's actually going to be loads of bumps in the road, loads of difficulties, slowdowns, reversals. Um, so, you know, it's we've had all of these problems and I can talk about what, what the problems are and give, give loads of examples. But ultimately, I think we will probably be okay and we probably will start really accelerating and there is going to be a new generation of big ideas. And, and there are two main reasons why I think that's going to happen. Um, the first is that we're building an incredible new toolkit of technologies that probably will unlock whole new vistas of ideas. So AI is, is a really obvious example there. Um, we will have things that um, essentially can view the world, that can create things in a completely different and unexpected way. So one example I, I give of this in the book is um, some software that DeepMind have produced called AlphaFold. And that solves um, a 50-year scientific problem puzzle which is the protein folding problem and you know i won't won't go into the weeds of what the protein folding problem is but uh you know essentially it's a massive unexplained question in biology that nobody's had a good answer for ever um and that has held back a lot of areas from really progressing um well they've had this like competition for the past um 25 odd years of who's made the most progress and out of nowhere, DeepMind tries a new machine learning approach, puts a lot into that, and it, within two goes, effectively cracks the protein-solving problem. So this huge problem has been just solved by AI, um, seemingly overnight. And it's that kind of thing. It's things like that that AI can unlock. I just think that's going to be a massive catalyst for big new ideas. And it's not just AI. The whole suite of technologies from um, sort of incredible biotechs to, you know, dare, dare I say it, something like the metaverse. Um, so that's one whole thing. And then, then the other real thing that is is accelerating us again is that for the first time in history, um, the entire world is converging at the frontiers of knowledge and capability. And that thing that we've never seen before, it's always been just a couple of societies or civilizations that have been on the frontier at any one time so you know you maybe had ancient greece or you had um the islamic caliphate in in the the middle of the first century uh, first millennium and so on um what's going on now is that china india the us europe almost everywhere is converging um at the frontiers of knowledge and in different ways so that that's unprecedented so you, you know we've got nearly eight billion people now who are probably in the next 20 years going to be plugged into the internet and in some way capable of really contributing to a generation of ideas 
um, it's a kind of one-time event. You know, population will peak this century. Um, you won't just keep adding people and adding knowledge like that. But it is happening now, and it's huge. So those are those are the two things that I think make the difference and make me optimistic that yeah, our, our best days are not behind us. Okay, you touched on a few things there. I'm going to take them through as, as we carry on. But you mentioned halfway through the book, um, people are doing their most significant work later on in life. Why do you think that is? Is it just taking evaluate ideas or are we drowning in data and self-doubt? Um, there's a, yeah, so th this is a really um, something that is it, you notice everywhere is that um, when people have their significant achievements and when people really hit their peak um, in terms of coming up with ideas and this might be technologists, it might be physicists, it might even be novelists. Everyone's getting older. Um, and that has all kinds of effects of what sort of thing they produce. And, and there is a there is certain amounts of evidence that it means that people are coming up with more conservative things. Um, and there's a very simple reason why they're getting older. And that is, there's just so much more for them to know and to work through. Um, you know, if you want to get to the very frontier in, say, physics, um, you know, you can't just do a three-year PhD and expect to get there. You have to do probably a four- or five-year PhD for all postdoc positions. And, and all in all, you're probably in your mid to late 30s by the time you get a job where you can actually do the research that you want to do. So, you know, compare that to the people who were starting out um, the time quantum mechanics was being developed. You know, they were all in their early, mid, late 20s, and they'd very quickly got to a place where they could get to these really radical, extraordinary ideas. Um, now a physics researcher has to go through all the work they did as well. So it just takes more time. Um, and this is called the burden of knowledge effect. Uh, and it, it exists pretty much everywhere there's just more to know more complexity to wade through more stuff that you have to do before you get to a point where you can really really contribute um and th there's one beautiful example of the burden of knowledge effect um so you know when um harvard university was founded uh john harvard i believe he got the naming rights for giving something like 300 books to the harvard library and that that in, in the mid-17th century, enabled him to name the whole uh, university. Now, Harvard University has 20 million books. So there's just been this extraordinary exponential um, inflation of knowledge. And, and you can see that in the fact that uh, pretty much every year, um, the number of journal articles just goes up by some massive amount. So that's why people are getting older. Um, and it means they have less time to do their best research that by the time they get to the point of doing their best research their best ideas they're at a sort of older safer more conservative less risky part of their life it means they've had loads more time just to be inculcated into the ways that disciplines work they're less likely to challenge the foundations of what they've just spent 15 20 years trying to work up to so you know, there's all kinds of impacts of it. And it's pretty much the case that you can see it in every single field with, with the possible exception of sport. But I mean, that's, that's probably not really an ideas thing. 
yeah, a few big ideas going on instantly to do with money and media, I would imagine. But yeah. Um, yeah. Do we need to be less offended by everything in order to think bigger or differently about things? How do you think fear of ridicule and cancel culture is affecting big idea generation? I think what, what, we, what we've got is this incredibly fractious, um, easily polarised, um, just nasty and intense atmosphere around almost any any area of debate can very quickly just become some kind of yeah pile on or cancellation event or epistemically polarized battleground um and you know i i don't sort of take any particular side in this i'm not sort of going to be like oh well it's it's those lot who are the worst I'd just say we kind of stew in a whole series of populisms, all of which add the potential for controversy, all of which make people second guess themselves, or it makes people, you know, just look for an excuse to attack somebody. So I definitely think this is having a massive impact on on a lot of areas for one way or another. I think people are either writing for their own echo chamber or they are so wary of, of saying what they think and putting out an idea in case it is taken the wrong way, um, or they are pumping out deliberate misinformation, or they're just going for a press release, um, or, you know, there's just all of these different ways. Um, and I do think fear does play a big role in it. And, you know, that there, there are certainly things that even I just would be worried about saying um ideas that you might really want to check yourself on so i think it's a massive thing i think it's really complex it's really many-sided um you know it's very hard to quantify what it means for the whole spectrum of ideas because there's no way you can really get a handle on it you can't really necessarily get any hard data on what it means um and and i'm talking about it in in, in such a sort of general way coming from lots of different aspects but I think it is a factor and it's it's one of the, those factors that doesn't seem to be going away. It doesn't seem better. There isn't a lot of positive news there to report. What a downer. Um, um, let's, let's talk uh, about uh, things to come in the future and that sort of thing. So we, we still haven't cured cancer yet. AI is helping with um, recognition and that sort of thing. But when we talk about big leaps coming, do we think that stuff like for example, analogous thinking could be the thing that solves cancer, or do you think it's more likely to rest in the hands of AI? I, I definitely think it's more likely to rest in the hands of AI, to be honest. Um, so so the, the curing cancer one is interesting because, you know, that, that was where I, I started a lot of the research on this and, and was medical advances and healthcare advances and, you know, that's something where people just assume that we are really good. Um, and they look at something like mRNA vaccine COVID and they think, right, that that's amazing evidence that we're we're seriously good at healthcare. Um, but actually, again, there's there's a lot of evidence that we're not very well, we're not nearly as good as we think we are. There's something called E-Room's law, which is Moore's law backwards. And that is that the cost of bringing a drug to market essentially uh, doubles every 10 years um, you know and that's kind of exponential growth in what it costs to launch a new drug so it is materially getting harder to launch new drugs into the market it, it's 
for a whole variety of reasons, just more difficult. Um, and partly that's because a lot of the more easy, obvious drugs have already been created. And partly it's because the regulatory burden and complexity around doing so is so much greater. Um, but the net impact is that we don't launch new healthcare um, well, drugs and, and, and other interventions as quickly and as easily and as effectively as we used to. So, you know, I think that's just a really important point. You know, we face we, we've got Moore's law on our side, but then we've got things like E-Room's law against that. Um, and one of the first things that we haven't done, of course, is cure cancer. Um, and that's a really good example of E-Room's law. Um, probably over the last 30 years, and I, I think this is, has been looked at, no single medical research endeavor uh, has taken anywhere like the amount of funding that the search for a cancer cure has. You know, it's ridiculous. Um, it's, you know, $500 billion of research or something like that. Um, and yet we don't really have it. Um, there are signs that we might with immunotherapy, but that's been a 30-year battle. Um, we, we seem to get these mRNA vaccines out of nowhere, and everyone um, thought that's amazing. But again, that's a kind of 25, 30-year battle. Um, one of the leading people who created uh, mRNA vaccines basically got fired and told that her, her research was useless and passed up over for promotions. So things like immunotherapy, mRNA vaccines, um, these describe the pattern of ideas getting harder. They don't bucket. So usually when you're seeing something new that comes in, um, it probably has been this massive journey that you would have assumed we would have just got over in, in years, not decades and decades. Um, but anyway, I, I think it's for that reason, Paul, that, that we, we, you know, any kind of thinking is, is not going to solve cancer if you see what i mean it needs something totally totally radical um you know the problems inherent and the complexity of cancer as a condition mean that only something like ai will probably get us to a definitive classic cure so that's that's what i'd say but it's coming like you know the the capacity to do this is being built in 10 years time i wouldn't be surprised if everyone can get some kind of AI-derived, personalised immunotherapy treatment for cancer, which would be incredible. Yeah, it certainly feels like healthcare is going that way, for sure. Um, definitely more personalised. Um, in some ways, I guess it does feel like we are surging forward in health. Um, space travel is another one that people mentioned to me um, when I was saying. Um, but you mention in the book that there's more academics, like we've said, but innovation is incremental. How, how do we speed that up then? Um, well, firstly, I'd I just sort of say that, like, we're, we're not speeding ahead in healthcare because we spend more and more on healthcare every single year that goes by and do not introduce more drugs and treatments. And actually, what, what's really stunning is that um, life expectancy has basically stalled for the last decade. Um, in the US. So, and in the UK, and to some extent, Western Europe, you know, COVID notwithstanding. So, you know, if you if you look at life expectancy, it was basically rising every single decade, but now it's stopped. And it's stopped at a time when we've never had more knowledge about aging, illness, disease, and so on. We've never had safer societies. Um, you know, people aren't sort of dying of, of 
sort of diseases from rubbish on the streets very much, that sort of thing. We've never had more money going into healthcare. So, you know, the argument that, that it's driving forward very fast is somewhat dis- sort of, you know, disputed by the fact that, that these life expectancy advances have, have stalled when they shouldn't have. And all the evidence of things like Eram's law. Um, again, on space travel, I think the big question is not why are we charging forward? It's why did we stop for so long charging forward in space travel? Why, why is it that, um, you know, the last people who ever walked on the moon um, were back in the 1970s? Um, the fastest somebody ever traveled um, was in something like, I think, 1969. Um, the number of actual things happening in space you know, if you, if you went back and told somebody growing up in the 60s that, you know, between the 1970s and, and the 2020s, nobody would go on the moon, there'd be no real advance human uh, space travel, I think they'd be stunned, they'd be appalled. Um, so I think it's it's really exciting that we now have these, you, you know, new um, heavy lift reusable rockets and things like that. But Given how much wealthier, so much more sophisticated some of our technologies are, I really think with space travel, the question is, why didn't it go so much further? Why did it stop? Why Why don't we have moon bases and that? So it is going forward now, but it's gone slowly. Mm. Um, I, I guess we can talk about uh, the two people who we have I've tried desperately not to mention, but you mentioned them in the book, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. They're obviously obsessed with space for different reasons um, and to different degrees, I think. Um, we can't really talk about progress without mentioning them. They, they do seem to be thinking bigger than the average bear and that sort of thing. Both are obsessed with space, want to push into that territory. Is space going to be an incremental race like you've sort of alluded to before? It was sort of bubbling along it does seem to be bouncing now um or do you get or do you think we're going to see to use a star trek term warp technology i think it'll probably be uh well <laughs> well i would love uh to see warp technology we're, we're definitely not going to see warp technology in, in this century i i would imagine um Here's what I think is likely to happen, um, is that it will probably um, bubble along uh, in an incremental way for the, well, we've had one slight paradigm shift, probably, um, and and that's come recently. But again, on the back of so much stasis and nothing happening, that that it's astonishing. And then I think we'll we'll bubble along for a bit, but then, you know, in say 20 years we will need some kind of total total uh revolution in what happens and to be honest people already know what that's likely to be it's likely to be massive nuclear fusion engines or light sails or i think they're called ramjet engines so people have these these ideas for how it will work um and then it's actually just building those and i I think they'll probably start coming in about 20 years um you know i think it's interesting that you know bring up those names because they obviously had their, their their wealth comes from digital technology and digital technology is the big exception to this thesis that the world is stagnating and i think that is fair enough and it's why you can't just say really complicatedly oh the world is is slowing down the world is stagnating um because obviously the internet digital technology has opened up and it's created so many new services that people couldn't have imagined so but the, 
it's not a totally uncomplicated picture and there are these areas where exciting things are happening and you know that's where jeff bezos and elon musk you know where they derive the wealth that means they can explore space i i sort of think it's it's amazing how even this has become polarizing though because a lot of people believe that bezos and musk are disgusting for doing what they're doing going into space they think it's unethical that they would spend money on going into space while people are starving here on earth um you know and i i happen to disagree with them but i think it probably is an example of how you know everything is fractious whatever you do it's going to be um it's going to generate controversy essentially and you know let's face it they can probably deal with that but um on, on a lower level if you're a philosopher coming up with some kind of crazy new concept perhaps it's more difficult for you uh, talking of controversy, you mentioned Peter Thiel in the book several times, um, pretty early on. He's, uh, I think, to put it mildly, a divisive character. Um, do you think he thinks differently to others? Or, well, and how much does your character impact big idea generation and people's acceptance of those ideas? Um, well, I, I didn't think too much about sort of people's individual character and um, big ideas, just because I, I think I was probably looking at, at such a kind of high level that um, and, and on such a general level that I didn't want to kind of bring it down to, to sort of specific characters. But I think it, it must do. And to be honest, that, that would probably be a really good, interesting follow-up is, yeah, are, are there any patterns in the characters of the people who have paradigm-shifting ideas across fields? And, and actually, that, that would be a really interesting... Ah, you might have just given me an idea for a book there, Paul. Um, I just take 10%. It's fine. <laughs> deal. Um, but um, I, I think there probably are certain characters um, who are more likely to, to, to do big ideas. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I feel very um, mixed about, you know, Peter Thiel because... You know, I find his politics to be frightening, to be honest. Um, you know, he has an extreme libertarian view that, that I really disagree with. Um, on the other hand, he's one of the most articulate and early proponents of this stagnation thesis. And, you know, he with the classic quote, um, we wanted flying cars. We got 140 characters, you know, um, you know, not not to slur Twitter too much, but it's, it's not a flying car, which you know, is, is what he sort of believed that people expected of the future, a future that never came. Um, so I'm, I'm very conflicted about him, but I think probably it's true that people who do come up with big ideas are somewhat unusual. They are contrarian. They are capable of putting themselves in some pretty strange intellectual places. And Perhaps he is a good example of that. But, you know, as I say, I'm very wary of him and, and I do find his politics to be really frightening. 100% agree with you. Um, the next big idea, and you've mentioned it already, seems to be the metaverse, whether it's Facebook's vision or other people's. Um, it's certainly going to be something. Um, when you big ideas like this, how important is it to communicate them effectively? Uh, and is there any, any advice for people when doing so? Well, you know, um, I actually think um, I, I'm going to go for a bit of a contrarian take here. And I think, no, I wouldn't say um, big ideas are about com communicating them effectively, because I think big ideas are the ideas that 
percolate almost off their own bat. Um, and often there might be a massive lag between an idea happening and an idea getting widespread acceptance or being widely adopted. Um, but I think if if you're having to really think about all the communication around a big idea, um, maybe one, it's not a great idea. And two, I just don't think, I, th I think big ideas take care of themselves. Um, and, and I think here, you know, here we're, we're already falling into the trap of conflating Facebook with the meta, which is what they want. And, you know, the, the concept of the metaverse, whether you love it or loathe it, I mean, probably 90% of people loathe it. Um, you know, it, it shouldn't be that it's kind of the responsibility of one company to be communicating what that idea is. You know, it already shows that they've colonized this big idea and, and almost we, we need to kind of reclaim it, you know. Um, Einstein didn't didn't spend that much time thinking about the communication of relativity when he was working it out. You know, um, it, it sort of went out there about eight people in the world understood it, but they were the eight people who needed to understood it. And then they told another eight people and so on. And eventually it catches on, um, you know, when you have a new artistic movement, um, you know, it's not about explaining that it's about it hitting the world and transforming it when it does. So, you know, I, I don't want to be too kind of touchy-feely about this because I think part of what a revolution, revolutionary moment is is that it is bracing, that it does hit you. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it's why I don't want Facebook to own this idea or any idea because, yeah, I think when we reduce it to a kind of corporate comms exercise just to make it palatable because we don't like the company, then it's already doomed. Yeah, I think a lot of people felt like that when the announcement sort of landed. I think they're they're sort of hopeful for this thing of sort of um, democratizing elements and that sort of stuff. Very much what the Web3 is all about, creators creating and all of that. I think it's an interesting opportunity for them to reset whether or not we trust them enough to do that or let them enough do that. I think that'll be interesting. They are the bigger player at the moment. I think it will be fascinating to see where they push it, whether or not people use it or are forced to use it. That's another question. Um, you mentioned, take away from companies, let's think about countries for a sec. You mentioned India in the book. How important will India be to the world? Um, you point out in the book um, CEOs of juggernauts like uh, Alphabet, Microsoft, um, IBM, uh, Adobe are all Indian for starters. Will that area be more important than China or just in different ways? Um, I don't think it will be more important than China. But I think it could be as important as China, which is to say of fundamental importance to the future of humanity, um, without question. So, you know, I think I think at the moment you've got this essentially just the relationship that is driving the future of technology and culture and so on is, is the US China. And then as a, a sort of third pole to that in almost every sphere, you've got the EU. Um but it's not really a kind of balanced system. And, and you know, India can be the, the sort of next pole that balances it. And, you know, it has some traditions that, that perhaps resemble China, many traditions that resemble um, the US and the West, a lot of things that are just completely distinctive and, and Indian. Um, so honestly, I think of, of anything that makes me really optimistic is the idea that we could get a whole bunch of science, technology, 
um, social sciences, et cetera, et cetera, coming out of India that are completely distinctive, that don't have um, either the strengths or the weaknesses of the US or China, but but bring a new thing to the board. So, you know, I, it's almost like I, I wish I'd talked more and more about that in the book, because I, I really do think it's of fundamental importance. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're only now seeing the impact of of China's transformation. So, you know, just, just in recent days, for example, um, it's dawning in a big way in the Pentagon and everywhere that China have all of these hypersonic missiles that they tested in July that, you know, nobody in the West even knows how these things work. Um, and, you know, the US has been leapfrogged. Um, but, you know, that that's a kind of 30... 40-year journey of economic development, of increasing number of people going to university. So, you know, I think it was about a decade ago, China started overtaking the US in number of PhDs. In 2016, it took over the US in terms of papers published. Um, in 2018, it took over the US in terms of high-quality uh, cited, cited um, papers in, in certain fields from the US. So it's slowly been going on this journey um, and only now are we really seeing what it means. You know, I, I, I would bet that, say, the first quantum computer that it, that is fully reaching quantum supremacy, unarguably, will be in China. So India's 30 years behind. So what what's it going to be like when we have India there as well? It's Europe is galvanized. The US is galvanized by all this competition. You've got all of these great blocks, these huge swathes of humanity doing so much. That is really exciting. How much do you think quantum's going to change the world? A lot of people say it's nowhere near ready. Other people are saying they've, you know, they're increasing the amount of time they can stand at quantum um, positioning and that sort of stuff. How, what's going to benefit first from quantum? Um, well, uh, cryptography, but um, you know, the the main thing that that it'll do is um, materials and chemistry, and you know that's the thing that people don't really talk about with with quantum is it, it's essentially that you can model um, atomic reactions at incredible levels of detail that are completely impossible currently. So the whole field of material things and chemical things is opened up in a way that you know I, I don't think we've even really begun to think of what it might be like. Essentially you know, it might be the first steps to kind of rendering, I mean, th this is potentially, uh, you know, complete hyperbole, but sort of rendering um, the physical world more like a software platform, something like that, because we, we just, under will I be able to model things and understand them in so much more detail? And, you know, that's what gets, you know, so I've, I've interviewed a few quantum computing scientists, that's what they're excited about. That's what they think it's all about. And it's, for them, it's not about applications, it's not about building businesses, it's about the fact that you will really be able to understand the world at that point. But obviously, the, the impact is huge. Um, and it's, it is coming fast, I think there will, it, you know, we'll get to sort of quant quantum supremacy in the next couple of years. And thereafter, it will be massive massive improvements in 10 years time you know it might have changed the whole game um you know then then there are the kind of unknown unknowns about it what it will do to ai what it'll do to synthetic biology um not really clear what it'll do to crypto again it's all not really clear at this stage at this early early stage so i'm i'm quite interested in it and and watching it and yeah it, i i think it's probably one of those things a lot of people who are familiar with it dismiss as maybe kind of bullshit and hype. 
but actually is is quite interesting. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by quantum. It took me a long time to sort of understand what it was about, but once I did, I went, that's going to mess up a lot of people's kitchens. I'm, I'm also, like you, very intrigued to see where it goes, but I definitely think it's going to be causing problems along the way as well. Um, before we do your Desert Island tweet, what is your best advice for people who want to introduce big ideas into where they work, organisations? Uh, it feels like larger organisations, it's harder to get big ideas through than ever. Um, is that fair to say, or is it, is it just as difficult in startups? Um, n- no, I think I think they're probably easier in startups. And I think it's big organisations, um, not just companies, but universities, government organisations. Um, I think it's really, really difficult to even have have a big idea they 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 tend not to want big ideas you know um they they want things that are known and manageable and predictable and that fit the five-year plan of the organization and so on whereas big ideas are disruptive they're out of context they um you know are unfamiliar they threaten to render everyone's sunk costs sunk knowledge completely redundant so no i think i think there's a huge problem with it um even even in the companies that everyone thinks of as really innovative, um, even there, you know, they are just kind of big bureaucratic beasts, basically. Um, I think in, in terms of getting a big idea through, I think you just have to be willing to take big, big risks and then be really, really persistent. Um, and, you know, again, this is the problem. People don't want to take risks with their career. You know, we talked about how they've spent 20 years um, getting to a point where they can actually start really doing stuff, do you then want to risk it all on one potentially harebrained idea? You know, is that what you're going to go to your boss and say, hey, I'm going to spend the next three years working on this? People don't want to take that risk, but that is the risk that needs to be taken. Um, without people doing that kind of, we'll just have the same little nudges forward. So that, I think, is all I have to say on it is, People have to be willing to really push themselves outside of anything that they, they've really thought about before. Um, you know, and again, th- there's all kinds of research on this. It's researchers who go way beyond their normal territory who really make a difference. It's people who, you know, it's the scientists who, even if they barely know about another area, they just get interested and follow it and their expertise and perspective to something completely new it's those ones who have the biggest impact and and in in every field that's what you need to do go to somewhere completely beyond what you're comfortable with really get stuck in combine it and then have you know just the tenacity to push it through um but it is surprisingly rare Uh, i love that you answered my last question which was going to be what was your 30 second exercise to you recommend for people to come up with a big idea so it's go away and uh, research everything which is fair enough well Um, it's just to be open to random stuff um and just to get interested and then follow it and then and then you know so the biggest problem paul i'll just be really quick is that everyone's stuck really deep in silos and you know i think like artists economists think like economists And that's what they know. You know, economists care about what other economists care about. Both of them, everyone needs to break themselves out of their silos. All of the big ideas in in every silo have basically mainly, and this is a bit controversial, have mainly already happened. All of the big ideas that are to come are going to exist between the existing silos. So you've got to get whoever you are, whatever you do, it's about getting out of the silo. I like that. I like that. 
Okay, it's time for Michael's Desert Island Tweet, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that has changed their mind in some way or their thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, you will see a tweet by Julia Galef, and you can follow her at Julia Galef. And the tweet reads, Are ideas getting harder to find? My latest podcast guest, economist Michael Webb, makes a strong case for yes, we debate the evidence and explore the reasons why technological progress might be slowing down. Why did you pick this one? Well, can I just firstly say it's it's a nightmarish task to to choose a a or, well two tweets in my case um, out of what must be I don't know like tens of millions of tweets that I've seen over the last thirteen years. Um, I didn't say mouthwash was easy. It's 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 a truly nightmarish task because you know one does just forget and erase them. But anyway, managed to get there. So I I picked this tweet because. Um, it, it did a, a whole load of things. Um, so Michael Webb was actually somebody who I worked with at DeepMind, but um, I hadn't realized he'd been working on this other thing. And then I saw it from Julia Galef, who, who hosts a podcast called Rationally Speaking. And I thought, wow, that's some stuff that, that he's been working on. And it came just as I was really getting into these ideas about our ideas slowing down. And suddenly there was this paper from four really eminent economists who'd done a load of work on quantifying the trend, on getting all of the data, and on basing a hard, unarguable case behind it. So for me, it was just this really incredible breakthrough in all these ideas that I had when I came across this paper. Um, and suddenly it just gave the like solid foundation to the book and the ideas. And I spoke to Michael about it a lot, and, and it really just moved this whole book from being vague ideas into something that I felt very confident about. And then secondly, be before that tweet and that podcast interview, I'd sort of been, you know, aware of what she was doing, aware of rationally speaking, aware of podcasts, but I wasn't that into them. Um, and it was that episode that made me realize, crikey, this is an amazing research tool. It's also that podcasts are amazing. We live at a time when you can just go and listen to conversations with all of the world's interesting people at any moment. Um, and so ever since I, I listened to that and it really catalyzed and gave a foundation to the book, I've just been a huge, huge listener uh, to podcasts. I, I just think they're an amazing asset for us as, as a whole sort of people today. So, so that, that turned me on to podcasts and it, and it created the book as it, as it, as it was. Oh, very cool. I didn't know the connection with the book, but very, very cool. Uh, yeah, huge fan of podcasts. Uh, I'm getting into them. I never was before, but I am getting into them. And audio shows, I'm much more, you know, it's backwards and forwards. So I'm loving it. Okay, your final um, Desert Island tweet is from Nine Quarterly, uh, and it just reads Nine. Uh, if you want to follow Nine Quarterly, it's N-E-I-N-E. Uh, why did you pick this one? Um, Because that tweet just sums up uh, Nine Quarterly, and it, it just sums up everything that... that 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 guy is doing and on that because you know i think when i started following them um twitter was just turning from being the golden early fun light-hearted days that it was in the beginning and you know actually as, as part of this desert island tweets i i went and looked back at early tweets of mine uh and they're mainly about me being hung over um which probably you know says something about where i was in life at the time and when that came along, I, I think Twitter was starting to go into its more rancorous and political phase. But what Nine Quarterly did was, is it just took an incredibly irreverent and different, but also intellectual and arch and interesting take on it. And it almost was like 
tweets as as art forms it was the first time i saw sort of you know tweets as these brilliant little haikus or something like that but all with this very middle european philosophical bent so i picked that because i think it one showed a totally different way of doing twitter to me um and it showed what it can be and and just how much it's a bold medium and secondly i think it was just brilliant um relief and interest for the brain just as things were becoming more political so it was a wonderful way out for that so for for both of those reasons i i picked it love it uh twitter not just what it is today it's been around for a few years i love that it is quite funny when you ask people to troll through their quote because they love to find their own ones and i go no 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 it has to be from other people <laughs> so it's quite interesting so yeah it's, it's, i'm glad it's, i didn't do that no, it's a constant thing where I go back and I'm like, no, no, they have to be other people. So it's fine. So, yeah. But that's cool if you inspire yourself. You know, that's great. You know, Right. Uh, that is a good place to leave uh, tonight's conversation on. Thank you for being a part of Mouthwash, Michael. I uh, really appreciate that. Uh, get the book. It's available uh, Amazon, any good places that books are sold. Uh, so, yeah, Michael Baskar, Human Frontiers, the future of big ideas in an age of small thinking. Um, I have an amazing cohort uh, of people this season coming up on Mouthwash, from big tech entrepreneurs, futurists, designers, thinkers, speech writers, loads people if it's important to being a better person business or planet i'm going to be talking about it up next is polymath and futurist ada paris fresh from her tedx amsterdam stint we're going to be talking about truth and trust another big thinker so strap in for some hard truths uh don't miss a minute head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get sms alerts when we go live um so yeah very very easy once again my thanks to the superb michael baskar follow him on twitter michael baskar or check out his website michaelbaskar.com please show your appreciation to him one more time with a shower of emoji as the lo-fi music plays us out uh, after that we'll do after hours so stick around if you'd like to ask a question um, but yeah thanks for listening in ecology's planted a tree for every single one of you and thanks to Sage's dashboard for having good audio be found i've been paul armstrong this has been match chat that leaves you more confident only on twitter spaces 